Good morning, everybody. Uh, As you know, I was up in San Francisco last week, and I appreciate you letting me go up there and ministering at that church. I was preaching at Reality San Francisco. Had a great time up there. Gosh, God is doing such a cool thing with that church. Uh, We had the honor of birthing that church five years ago, and uh, God's doing an incredible... I know it's been five years, Jack. Can you believe it? Makes us feel old, doesn't it? Five years. (laughs) And uh, God's doing an amazing thing up there. So a fun thing for you to do someday would be go visit all of our church plants, because they're in cool places, right? By God's grace, God's just done it. San Francisco and L.A., Boston. Stockton is not a wonderful place to visit, but (laughs) we do have a wonderful church there. And then the next two church plants coming up, which we have not yet announced, are in incredible cities. Perhaps the best yet. (laughs) So begin to pray, and you can visit there someday, too. Okay. Uh, We have a book recommendation for you. This book is called Heaven. It's by Randy Alcorn. And, uh, you know, we're in the book of Revelation, in the closing chapters, and it's about what we would call heaven generally, right? Popularly, we refer to it as heaven. It's really the new earth and the new heaven and uh, God's new creation and the way that that plays out. And sometimes what we popularly think of as heaven is very different than the scriptural picture and teaching of heaven. So this book is really, in my opinion, the authoritative work. It's kind of a thick one, but popular level written, easy easy to read, authoritative book on heaven. Uh, so I recommend this to you guys. It'll really help you understand what happens when someone dies and, and what happens in new creation and what's the role of work in new creation. What will our bodies be like? What will our relationships be like? What will renewed creation be like? What will God's presence be like? All of that stuff in this book. It's the best book I've ever read on the subject. And for those of you that are mourning or grieving in any way, this was a tremendous help to my wife and I when our daughter Daisy died. Uh, We both spent time reading this book. Even though I had read it before, I revisited it, and it was a great help to me. So that's available for you today. If you have money, pay for it. If you don't, take it. How's that deal? Good deal, right? Good deal. Okay, let's give some love to our Ventura campus for joining us. And let's open up to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Just a couple more weeks in the book of Revelation. I mean, this is like world record speed for our church. I will have finished this thing in nine months, which is inconceivable, really. It took us three years to do Ephesians. So to do the book of Revelation in nine months, I don't know if that's good or bad. I'm not assigning value to it. I'm just incredibly surprised. <laughs> Revelation chapter, one, chapter 21, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. The title of this sermon is The New Beginning. You'll remember last week, Young Bo was teaching for us. Young Bo, don't we love Young Bo? Give him some love. <laughs> Brother Bo. He loves it when I call him Young Bo. And he loves it when you do too. And uh, the title of his sermon from the end of chapter 20 was The End. So the title of this sermon is The New Beginning. And really, before we get to the text, I'll say this. There are some parts of scripture that need no sermon at all. And really, there are some parts of scripture that are maybe better off without a sermon. There are some things, rare things that we read in scripture 
that are simultaneously crystal clear and yet incomprehensible. That's the text that we have before us. Last week, we saw the end with the great white throne judgment. This week is the beginning. So Revelation 21, verse 1. John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part is in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we have before us glorious truth, crystal clear, unmistakable, and yet unfathomable, even unimaginable in its implications, truth. Thank you for God. We pray that you would help us to hope greatly in this truth, We pray that you would help us, Holy Spirit, to know that this day is coming and that it doesn't feel so far away and that we can live with joy in light of what you're going to accomplish and that we should live faithfully in light of what you've done, are doing, and will do. So please help us to understand your word. Help us to rejoice in it and help us to obey it. And please help me to teach and preach in a way that's faithful and helpful, and for the glory of Jesus. We pray it together, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, when we get to this chapter, and we get to these chapters in the book of Revelation, we really have gotten, truly, to the end of the Bible. We've come to the end of the story. We've come to the end as far as it is revealed to us of the work of God. And yet it isn't the end at all, is it? It's a new beginning. It tells us that all things become new, that there is a new beginning. And in that, we realize that there is so much more to the story that we just won't know until we get there. We've come to the end of what has been revealed to us. And it's interesting if we look at the end of what is revealed to us to the way it parallels and completes and has continuity with the beginning of what was revealed to us. 
If we compare the end of the book to the beginning of the book, if we compare the end of the book of Revelation to the beginning of the book of Genesis, we see this incredible continuity, this sealing up of God's work in God's story. Genesis tells us that God created heaven and earth. But Revelation tells us of a new heaven and a new earth that will be brought about by God. In Genesis, the luminaries are called into being, the sun, the moon, and the stars. But at the end of Revelation, we're told in chapter 21, verse 23, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the lamp. Genesis reveals to us the cunning power and deceit and destruction that the devil works. But Revelation tells us that the devil will be bound and hurled into the lake of fire. In Genesis, humanity, we rebelled and were driven from the garden. And an angel was stationed to guard the way to the tree of life so that we could no longer partake of it. But in the book of Revelation, humanity, we are redeemed and beckoned inside the gates, having had our right to the tree of life restored. Genesis tells us, sadly, about paradise loss. The book of Revelation tells us wonderfully about paradise regained. Genesis pictures the sadness of humanity and our rebellion, running from and hiding from the presence of God in shame. Revelation shows us the beautiful communion of humanity reunited with the presence of God. Verse 3 says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And they lived happily ever after. That's where it comes from. I mean, that's where we got that. The original story, the truest story, the greatest story comes to us in Scripture. God's story. And it really does end with an authentic, and they lived happily ever after. And the salient point to all of this, the text before us, the salient point of new creation is that heaven and earth are joined. You see on the text, they're joined and and the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. And what we have experienced for our whole experience is a separation between heaven and earth. New creation is a joining of heaven and earth. We think of heaven where God is and earth where we are and this chasm between us. But new creation is a removal of the chasm. New creation is a returning of God's people to God's presence in the fullest way, in the way it was meant to be. It's the end of separation. God's presence on earth, heaven and earth come together in a new thing existing in a different way and for what we would call eternity. When we speak of eternity, when we speak of heaven, this is really what we're talking about. 
There is current heaven where Paul writes to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And when someone dies, they go to be with the Lord. And that's heaven right now. But this is a joining, again, of God's dwelling and man's dwelling. New creation together for all of eternity. And it's glorious and it's wonderful and it's the way that God intends it to be. But remember, just from the book of Revelation, all that has happened to bring us to this point. Remember the great triumph of Jesus as seen in the book of Revelation. The beast and the false prophet have been defeated. Babylon and the harlot have been destroyed. That old serpent, the dragon, the devil, and death have been vanquished forever. Sin and evil have been fully and finally judged. And the first things, things that are tainted by, formed by, destroyed by, maimed by, all of those enemies that God has dealt with in the book of Revelation have passed away, we're told in verse 4. And so now in new creation, what's pictured here, in eternity, in ultimate heaven, all the cumulative effects of evil and sin, all the cumulative effects of death and the devil, all the cumulative effects of the harlot in Babylon, all the cumulative effects of the false prophet and the beast and their kind are permanently done away with. Every stain, every scar, every trace of wrong and death are removed in new creation. And they were removed by judgment. Ultimately, as we saw in the text last week, at the great white throne judgment, God's final dealing with evil, the end. So now that that end has come, there is a new beginning. And there isn't even a hint of those other things. Again, the first things have passed away. And they've so passed away that scripture employs vivid, stark, destructive sort of imagery to talk about it. Peter spoke about it in 2 Peter chapter 3 this way. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now that's that's judgment language. Fire and heat and intensity and destruction. That's language we see throughout the Bible of God judging things. It may be that there's some way in which there's actual fire, this, that, or the other, but the salient point is God destroying In a final way, evil. Then verse 13 says, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So you see the language of verse 10 there is that of utter destruction. It's it's burned up, it's, it's destroyed. All the scars, the wounds, the evil, the perpetrators thereof, death and the dragon, Finito. We are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so this voice comes through the, through the 
or from the throne, excuse me, in verse 5, saying, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, there is an in-house debate about the quality or the the nature, the essence of this newness. Students, like us, differ as to whether new creation is new in the sense of having no continuity with the present world. So this world and all that we've seen, all that we've touched, all that we felt, all that we know is truly, totally done away with completely, perishes, and there's a brand new one. Or... If new is used in the sense of this present world which we know, which we've touched, which we have experienced, which we've seen being rejuvenated, being renewed. And there's arguments on both sides. I'll just tell you what the answer is. No, I don't actually know. But I think that what it is, is renewal. Renewal. Because God made the world... And he said, it is good. He made humanity. It is good. God intended for it to be good. But sin entered in and God said, I will redeem. And humanity rebelled, but God made a covenant with humanity and said, I will be their God. They will be my people. God had a plan to redeem and to restore And to renew. So that I believe that there is some continuity between current creation and new creation. Just as there is continuity in the resurrected body of Christ. It was altogether different. He walked through walls and there were women who didn't recognize him. But there was some continuity. Once they got, oh, that's Jesus. They went, oh, that's Jesus. Just as there will be continuity in our resurrected bodies. We ask, will I, will I recognize my loved one when I see them in heaven? When I see Daisy, will I know it's Daisy? Yes. I'll know it's her. She'll be all together different, new creation, glorious, untouched by the scars of this old world. But make no mistake about it, it will be her. And there will be continuity in new creation. This is why work and vocation are of value to us. The things that we do aren't all just going to burn up as a waste. God made you with your gifts, your talents, your proclivities, the things that you invest in. And there are things that we do that will have some enduring quality to them. Therefore, be steadfast, be immovable knowing that nothing that you do for the Lord is in vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. God redeems. God restores. God renews. A picture of this is God's current work of renewal. Behold, if any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. It's you, but you're altogether different. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. It is you, but you're all together different. And that's just a foreshadow. That's just a pre-shadow. That's just a tiny little taste. That's the incomplete portion thereof. There's coming a much greater experience of God's work of recreation, renewal, restoration. 
And this renewal of all things will be a fulfillment of God's ancient promise to his people Israel. Because God always keeps his promises. And he promised to Israel that this would be the case. Isaiah the prophet, chapter 65. God says, look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth. And no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Be glad, rejoice forever in my creation. And look, I create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Now, notice right there. You see that phrase in the second part of verse 17 might make you think, well, there's no continuity. We're not going to think of the old one anymore. But the fact that there's Jerusalem shows us that there is some continuity, that there are these same points of reference, whatever they may mean. What we won't remember are the scars, the wounds, the rip-offs, the horrors, the evil, the losses. What Jerusalem will be is a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy. And I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. That was God's ancient promise to Israel, his people, who knew that much had been lost in the rebellion. Much had been lost in idolatry. Much had been lost in the sin of humanity. But God promised that there was coming a day and a way through Jesus the Messiah in which he would restore. And he promised them all those thousands of years ago that he would make all things new. And then what happened when Jesus came is that the gospel, as God intended, showed to us in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, the gospel went to all the world. It was the promises God made to the Jews, but they were inclusive of all the world that would come to God through Jesus. And so then this new body of God's people, the church is formed, and we're brought into these ancient promises of Israel. They're still God's covenant promises to Israel, but they include all those who would come into the promises of God through Jesus Christ. And Peter writes about it this way beautifully in 1 Peter 1. It says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. Okay, this is talking about us right now. Here's the deal. Because we've been saved, because of the promises made to Israel and the end of the story, the happily ever after given to us in Revelation, we live with great expectation. Verse four says, because we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. Revelation 21, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Look what verse 6 says. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though, okay, some real life stuff here, even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. Notice what that says. Be truly glad because of what is coming, even though life is hard right now. Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? Life is hard. 
That's just part of life. Jesus doesn't lie. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Revelation 21 is Jesus is overcoming. So be truly glad. Verse 7, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's part of what we go through. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. Shows you where we should give attention in life, right? So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him, even though you've never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. And that's, that's the Christian life because we know the end of the book. That is the way that the end of the book forms our lives. We've been born again. We've been forgiven of our sins. You know what? Life is still hard. But guess what? There's new creation coming. And so we're not overwhelmed by the evils of the day. We know that there will be an answer to them. And we can actually have glorious, inexpressible joy because of what Jesus has accomplished. And this inheritance spoken of in this passage is what is pictured here in Revelation 21. The final reward, the final full experience of us having trusted in Jesus. Notice what it says back in our text of Revelation 21 and verse 7. It says, he who overcomes shall inherit these things. There's that inheritance language again. Things that are promised to us. And I will be his God and he will be my son. That promise was first made to David. God first said that about David way back in Samuel. David. I will be his God, he will be my son. And this promise has been extended to us through the work of God. So it says there, he who overcomes shall inherit these things. Now that's been the exhortation of the whole book of Revelation is to overcome. Because the truth of the context of the book of Revelation is that these Christians were facing difficult days. They were being persecuted for their faith. Many of them would be killed for their faith. All of culture was luring them away from their faith. All that was popular and powerful was tempting them to deny their faith. And it would appear to them that they could have it safer, easier, better, be more prosperous if they would just let go of Jesus and go along with the flow of culture. And so the book started with Jesus speaking to the seven churches saying, listen to me, overcome, overcome. There are great promises. Don't give in in the face of culture. Don't cave in in an antichrist atmosphere overcome. So what overcome means in the book of Revelation is to cling to Jesus no matter what comes our way. That's a call to Christian life. How can we do it? Because we know the end of the story. It's always going to pay to cling to Jesus. It's always going to pay to obey Jesus. It's always going to pay to go his way instead of their way. It's always going to pay 
to pursue Jesus Christ because we know the end of the story. So to overcome is to cling to him, to maintain faith in him. And let's be honest, there are many who don't. There are many who won't. And if we have all understood the teachings of the New Testament and the book of Revelation at all, it's going to get more difficult in our world, in our place, in our spaces to be faithful to Jesus. In the immediate interim, the world is not going to look at us and say, you know what, we love your Christianity. We love your morals. We love that you say there is only one way to heaven. We love your view on marriage. That's not going to happen. It is, and it will ever increasingly be very much the opposite. So if the book of Revelation has taught us anything, it has taught us to cling to Jesus, to overcome, to keep the faith, to finish the course, to fight the good fight. Because the story ends well for those who do. John the Apostle, writing about this, our faith that overcomes, said, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, right? Put faith in Jesus, born again. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. Talking about love between the Christians. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. That's the destiny of the Christian. You've been born again by the spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You're an overcomer. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Keeping the faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So it's not that big of a deal. I know I painted sort of an ominous, intimidating picture, but you, you don't have to go out and fight every fight necessarily. You don't have to be on the front lines of every battle. You don't have to confront yourself, all the injustice or the wickedness. You do have to, though, continue to trust in Jesus Christ. Because in the end, he's the one who overcomes wickedness. He's the one to whom judgment has been entrusted. We do work for justice. We do confront wickedness. We do fight these battles in the public realm, in the personal life. But in the end, it's Jesus who wins. So our goal is to maintain faith in Jesus Christ. And that's contrasted clearly with this little backward glance given to us in verse 8. Verse 8 is a a backward glance to what happened in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 20, the great white throne judgment. Right, it tells us, okay, be overcomers. That's who inherits these things, verse 7. And then it gives us this backward glance in verse 8 that we might remember. But for the cowardly, I could think that's those who didn't count the cost, who didn't keep faith in Jesus Christ, and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is a second death. It's a look back to what we saw last week at the great white throne judgment. The new creation won't be like the current world. 
where there's this blurring of lines. It's real clear. We're looking for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It's a different substance altogether. And the joyous promise of the text that is before us is the eternal and full experience of God's presence, God's comfort, God's intent, and God's provision. Now, leave those up there for a bit. These are all current experiences of the Christian. Don't we have now God's presence? Right? We are together, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. God's Spirit dwells in you, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Romans chapter 8, and elsewhere. We, we have God's presence with us in a real way, but not in the ultimate way that we're talking about in new creation. We have God's comfort, but it'll be different in new creation. We experience part of God's intent through redemption and restoration and repentance. And we experience God's provision, but all these things are in fullness in new creation. God's presence, again, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Over and over and over, as far as I could find, well over a dozen times in the Old Testament, God says this to his people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And they would rebel again, and God would come back to him in his covenantal love. This is God's covenant language. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And they would rebel again, and God would pursue them again. And again, this is God's covenantal language. I will be your God, and you will be my people. In that ancient covenant that God always in love reverberated to the world will become the actual condition of the world in new creation. It's not a promise anymore. It's not a reverberating sound anymore. It's a physical reality in the new heaven and new earth, the presence of God. I mean, that's the way God wanted it to be in the garden. It says, and they walked with God in the cool of the day. God's presence was there before the rebellion. That's the way God wanted it to be for his people. And so he told Moses, listen, Let's make a tabernacle. Okay, we'll make a little building and my presence will be in it and it's going to be portable. So when you guys are wandering in the wilderness, I will go with you. What did he say about that tabernacle, that tent of meeting it was called? He said, and here you will meet with me. I will be your God and you will be my people. An expression but not the full expression of God's presence. Shekinah glory was called. And then he said, well, let's make this permanent. Let's put this tent of meeting as a temple in Jerusalem. Solomon will build it. And there my presence will be. And all of the nations will be invited into my presence because I want to be their God and I want them to be my people. And then in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. All that was, was God saying to the world, I will be your God and you will be my people. Let me show it to you with my presence. Christ, Hebrews chapter one, the exact representation of God. A form, just as there was in the garden, just as there was in the tabernacle, just as there was in the temple, there was in the incarnation, an expression of God with us. After all, his name was Emmanuel, God with us. But in new creation, we won't be talking about expressions or part of it or incarnation or manifestation. The physical reality of new creation will be the presence of God. That's just going to be good. It's just going to be good. It's one of those things here that is crystal clear and incomprehensible. I can't tell you what that'll be like. The text does the best it can to tell us what it'll be like. I I can't tell you what it'll be like. I think that this period in future history is where human language meets its end. And so the revelation stops because there wouldn't be any words that we could ever spell or understand that could describe to us the reality of God's presence on earth with his people. Part of that will be God's comfort. Verse four says, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. I love that phrase. It's just beautiful. It just speaks of of real intimacy, doesn't it? I mean, I, I have a baby, so this is part of my daily life, right? Little Fifi. She doesn't cry that often. Thank you, Jesus. She's not a cryy baby. But when she does cry, I love to pick her up and wipe those little tears off those fat little cheeks. I mean, right? It is the joy of the Father to wipe the tears away from those little cheeks. It's an intimate act. It's an act of tremendous love and care. It's an act that expresses power. When you wipe away the tear, you're saying, sweetheart, I can actually do something about that which has made you cry. That's what God is saying. In Revelation chapter 21, he has done something about all that has ever made us cry. And in intimacy, he wipes away every tear. And his intent then is realized, next part of verse four, and there will no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying. That's the end of it. He wipes away the tears. There's no more or pain. The first things had passed away. That is crystal clear and simultaneously unimaginable. I mean, we can't even begin to imagine a world where there is no pain. I mean, from your little nagging back pain, right? I have it right now. (laughs) To the pain of genocide. From the pain of a stubbed toe 
to the pain of a lost child. From the pain of missing someone who's far away to the pain of that diagnosis and that separation. None of that. And nothing touched by that. Nothing touched by it. There won't even be reverberations of it. It's gone. Nothing touched by the effects of death, sin, wickedness. There won't be any mourning. I can't imagine a world where there's no mourning. You ever just wake up on the wrong side of bed and no matter what happens, you're just bummed out all day? Is it only me that that happens to you? How many of you does that happen to? Oh, wow, it's a lot of us. Okay. None of that. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. You know, I feel stupid talking about it because it's incomprehensible. But it's our inheritance. As sure as Christ has risen from the dead, Christ is coming again to renew all things. This is not a question. This is not a fairy tale. This is the true, the first, the only, the actual happily ever after. And then God's provision will be there for us. Verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. Second time that he said that. Do you remember the first time? On the cross. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. God calls himself in Jeremiah chapter 2, the spring of water. Jesus came to the woman at the well and said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water. And if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. We'll see when we get to chapter 22 that there is a river of living water flowing forth in the new Jerusalem. All of this speaks of satiation, satisfaction. All this says that any right desire, God-given desire that we've ever had will be satisfied in the presence, the comfort, and the intent of God. I will give to him who thirsts water without cost. Isaiah spoke of it. This is where it's fulfilled. God's provision. This speaks of true satisfaction. Isn't it wonderful to think that in the new creation, we'll be truly satisfied in Jesus? Because man, it's a struggle these days for us, isn't it? I mean, we know as Christians, we've been taught, we've read, we've heard, I ought to be, and I can be, and I should find all my satisfaction in Jesus. Man, we're weak people, aren't we? We're frail people, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We go looking for satisfaction in all these other things, in all these other places. Isn't it good to know that there's a coming a day when our wandering will cease? Just nowhere else to go, man. I'm in the presence of Jesus. There's nothing to be bummed about. There's nowhere I'd rather be. I'm fully satisfied in his glory. 
We achingly now live in a world where there's a challenge to that. And so it's tough. Romans chapter 8 says we're groaning for this day. It says all of creation longs and waits for this day. All of creation, it's not just us. All that will be renewed is waiting for this day because so much has gone awry. And that's the way it's meant to be. That's part of our story. That's part of what happens to us because of the fall from Eden. Let me give you a quote from that book I recommended, Heaven. Randy Alcorn says this. We are homesick for Eden. We're nostalgic for what is implanted in our hearts. It's built into us. We long for what the first man and woman once enjoyed, a perfect, beautiful earth with free and untainted relationships with God, each other, animals, and our environment. And every attempt at human progress, this is a profound statement, every attempt at human progress has been an attempt to overcome what was lost in the fall. Look at all the ways that we have endeavored to do that. I mean, we've put ourselves on the moon and endeavor to somehow overcome, to find some new world, some great experience, some magical place that somehow speaks to this gnawing, homesick feeling. Well, this is home. Revelation 21 is home. This is where it all comes together. It's the ideal, and it's real. It's the better than Eden. But remember this. What we ought not to do with this is just relegate it to the future and go about business as usual. That's not the way Christians live. The future forms our present. Bible prophecy is given to us that we might live in certain ways. Part of that is hope. Man, when times are hard, we just hope. We just hold on to this hope we have in Jesus. Part of that is just talking about it. We just talk about it. That's why I love that book, Heaven, man. When I lost my daughter, just reading that book, just talking about these glorious promises. But we can't just let it be hope. We can't only wait for it. These things are partially true now. The kingdom of God is coming, but the kingdom of God has come. So we also pursue it and live it. The redeeming grace and the transforming power of God is at work right now. In fact, when the voice of God comes from the throne in verse 5, he says, behold, I am making all things new. That's in the present tense. He took a moment from the future and spoke into John's very troubled world and said, even now, John, I'm making all things new. And so that forms the way that we live. Think about 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed. There's some present tense for you. Are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. You see it's not just a then thing, it's a now thing. It is ultimate then. But it's real now. So pursue it now. 
the transforming grace and redeeming power of God in our lives. The Holy Spirit is working to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, which is glory. So these things we can look forward to and go, oh man, that's going to be good. And then we stop and say, yeah, yeah, but what's good now? Because right now God is present in my life. Right now God's comfort is with me. Right now God's intent is being fulfilled in my life. Right now God's provision is here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Present tense, man. Not will be, not maybe going to be, is. He is a new creature. The old things passed away. Same exact phrase we see twice in Revelation 21. It's not just then, it's now. Behold, new things have come. We've been made brand new. We have new natures. We're not subject to the power of sin anymore. It doesn't rule us. We're not slaves in the domain of darkness. We've been delivered, brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. We're new creations, alive to God, alive to Christ and his righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Someone say, yeah. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. (laughs) Some people said amen. Yet inwardly we are being renewed. There's some present tense, day by day. God is at work in our lives right now. God is at work in the whole world. His promises will be fulfilled. The story will come to a close, which is a new beginning. Happily ever after is the Christian reality. We own that. That's God's story. And we are being renewed day by day. And so we live in a way that honors Christ. That's what we do. We endeavor to live in a way that honors Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we endeavor to do. The redeemed universe of the future is meant to be foreshadowed by the redeemed people of the present. Last two passages. For we are the temple of the living God, God's presence. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. Revelation 21 language. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Covenant language, God's longing. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is clean and I will welcome you. Live in a way that is different from the world that doesn't know Jesus. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters. Revelation 21 language. The old promise made to David. Says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's just a big, beautiful, fancy, heavy way of saying, let's turn away from sin and let's obey Jesus. Because he's ours and we are his. Peter said it this way. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, 
old creation, what kind of people ought you to be? How do we live in light of the coming judgment and renewal? Well, you ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. See? As we look forward to the day, we live in a certain way. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So for that, We need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need humility. And brothers and sisters, we need resolve. If this is really the story, if it's really going this way, then we really should weigh out our decisions in light of this glorious story. This compromise I'm about to make, this thing I'm about to do, this portion that I'm about to take, Is this really living out my destiny? Or is that something less than? And ask the Holy Spirit to help you to obey Jesus. And he's happy to do that. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for these glorious promises. And for the present help of the person of the Holy Spirit. Who is a promise from the Father, the power of God, that we might live lives that are worthy of being witnesses for Christ. And that we might just show a really, really broken world the beauty of renewal, the beauty of redemption, what new creation looks like in our own lives. Help us with that, Lord, even as we pray these things. All of our little, all of our stuff is just flashing before our minds. And so, Holy Spirit, would you help us to grab some of those things and begin to repent of them and turn away from them and turn to you? Would you help us to stop presenting ourselves for unrighteousness and to present all the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness for Christ's sake? Would you help us to pursue Jesus and his glory and his purposes in this world? Thank you for so great and inheritance. Thank you for such wonderful promises. Thank you, Jesus, that you're the one that brings them about not us. But help us to cling to you and to follow you, to worship and obey. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.